Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hi, I'm Kathy. I'm a sexaholic. And as I said, my sobriety date is June 5th, 05. And uh, I will follow the format of what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. And uh, I do need to surrender that I'm anxious. I've not. I've shared my story publicly uh, in face-to-face meetings and at uh, regional conferences, but I've not done it on the phone, and I'm having a little anxiety, um, which is ironic. When you hear my story, you'll understand why I say that. Also, I want to surrender any need to... Uh, Uh, impress or please people because that is uh, something that I definitely struggle with. So then I'll get started. Um, I'm 57 years old. I grew up in uh, western Kentucky in a very rural area. Uh, My mother was uh, um, a single parent before that was very common and um, I don't want to tell too much of her story, but it does interact with mine. Um, She um, um, had been married and divorced. Um, She became pregnant with me in uh, 1959, I guess. And uh, she remarried her first husband, who was an abusive alcoholic. And with the understanding that they would keep this secret, that and let let everybody believe that I was his child, which I was told and believed until I was 12. Um, Actually, my mom had gotten pregnant, unmarried in 1959, and she's a divorcee, so there was much more shame and stigma about that in society than there is today, and I don't fault her for that. It's just the facts. Um, My dad um, had two girlfriends. They both had the same name, so he never had to worry about messing that up. And they also both became pregnant around the same time. So I have a brother that's three months younger than I. Um, My mom shared with me who my dad's biological father was when I was 12, which I had a mixture, of course, of some confusion and some relief because I didn't understand why I had really no connection with who I was told was my biological father and actually very little contact. So um, when I was growing up, we lived in a rural area, went to uh, uh, church mostly, periodically, didn't necessarily see it, lived out in home. So sometimes when I'm asked if I grew up in a Christian home, I'm not really sure how to answer that. I uh, would say it would have been called that by our family, but I didn't see much evidence of the application. As far as uh, uh, sexual history, I um, was uh, very curious, intrigued, and uh, lived in an environment where anything about sexuality 
from the most basic medical biological facts to lust was all forbidden, shameful, dirty, and not to be talked about, which only fired my curiosity all the more. Um, it was very hush-hush. I remember things like, um, I remember there was a hole in the in the door of the uh, the bathroom. We didn't have an indoor bathroom till I was in second grade, so I don't know. So I'm eight or nine years old, and I used to look through there and uh, and to um, <clears throat> spy on uh, a male taking a shower and. Um, looking at books, looking at things, and I was always, there seemed to be some code I needed to break in the world from what I saw on TV, songs, literature, people whispering about stuff, whatever. So I was really, really obsessed about sexuality, uh, including having a lot of curiosity about animals, particularly a male dog, which I uh, touched inappropriately. Um, we had uh, some cousins that lived in another county, a family there. My, my mom got married when I was five and had, had a son. So my stepdad, his family, we would go visit. They, were, they had multiple kids, mainly girls, and they were much more open about talking about things like periods and just stuff surrounding your body. And while I was there uh, in the bathroom, I found a magazine which was targeted to women, and it was much less about pictures than it was about stories. And these stories were very filled with lust. And I became very obsessed by that. I felt afraid. I felt ashamed. But I was real curious, and I could not do that. So I was always advocating to go and listen to them. So I guess this is... My female version of the guys who find somebody in the family's uh, porn magazines and look at pictures. So I was real obsessed with that. I was obsessed with my body. I spent an inordinate amount of time uh, masturbating, fantasizing, and a lot of times I didn't even know what I was really talking about or thinking about. I just... It was my imagination. I had an older female cousin. She was less than two years older than me. And um, we acted out together. And we had another cousin whose parents were actually uh, physically intimate. That wasn't something I was aware of in my home. And she would spy on her parents. Then she would report it to the two of us. And we would ask questions. And I totally recognize some of this is just, normal growing up and learning and curiosity. But I also know that I was obsessed and I had an awareness early on that I had to be careful not to let people know how much I was obsessed with this because it did not seem to be the norm, um, even even as a young child. Um, I relate so much to our reading the problem, and I'm certainly not going to read all that because we did, but the the feeling inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid, I had that in spades. Um, insides never matched what I saw on the outsides of other. Again, that was majorly a part of that. So <clears throat> as I grew up, the home I was in was uh, unpredictable. My stepdad was... Uh, 
trying to find a kind word to say. He was very emotionally manipulative and abusive. Get your trust, gain your trust, and then pull the rug out from under you. Very shaming, critical, and um, my mom raged a lot, yelling a lot. Um, there was physical discipline, and then there was uh, physical discipline that I would consider um, abusive as well. Um, Honestly, the physical wasn't as painful as the rages of just being torn down. Um, multitude of examples of that. I don't feel I have time to go into all that. So it was pretty chaotic and unsafe. I really latched on to not only my imagination in, uh, in the fantasy masturbating world because I could check out. I read a lot, good stuff, and as well as the, the lust magazines I found. And uh, I was really good at school, and I got a lot of uh, positive affirmation at school and succeeded well there. And so school felt like my real life and my escape, and home was something I endured till I got back there. And I was like any kid. Sometimes, you know, I played sick or as I got older, skipped school or whatever. I'm not a total nerd, but anyway. Um, but that was something I really latched on to. Um, the area I grew up in did not really value education. I was definitely not athletic, even though I gave a shot at the track team when I was in high school, and that was abysmal failure. Um, so in all that, there was just a lot of chaos and pain. I remember being very depressed. I can remember as a teenager being suicidal. I uh, got introduced to alcohol when I was probably in middle school, and um, alcohol was okay, but it, it was not, um, it never took hold to the degree that lust took hold of me, I'll put it that way. Um, later on, as I got older, you know, I was, uh, I would allow boys to touch me under my clothes on the school bus, um, acted out in a lot of ways like that, and I, you know, had these um, very rigid rules about uh, my church was very um, uh, legalistic and so I felt what I was doing was wrong and I I was able to put myself in the positions where if somebody this was my my messed up thinking if I could get myself in a situation where someone was doing something to me then it seemed like a technicality, then I wasn't guilty of doing anything wrong. Uh, and I enjoyed that kind of attention and also was very uh, ashamed. And it, that, that kind of a shame and uh, fear of getting caught and things like that really fueled my lust. So I had uh, voyeurism, there was exhibitionism, later on there was sex in public. Also had no idea how to end one relationship, grieve, and then go on to another one. There was just overlapping, whether they were, you know, short-term or there were some long-term uh, relationships. I wasn't allowed to pretty much go anywhere. I wasn't allowed to drive the car. I wasn't allowed to date. I had one legal date as a teenager. This guy drove out, and the rule was, which I thought was just draconian that he had to come and meet them before we could go out. Now, as a parent, I kind of have a different perspective of that. But he came out, met them, we went on a date, and it was just officially above board a date. And then it was 
pretty much a nightmare. Um, there really was no date. It, it was basically resulted being in the car and uh, me trying to fend off his advances and just feeling very violated and betrayed. Didn't result in intercourse, but and the sad thing is, I wasn't. I didn't have anybody to talk to. I didn't feel safe talking to my family because I figured I would never get out of the house again for the rest of my life. And uh, so I had a lot of pain, hurt, and anger and no models for dealing with this and and no safe adult in my home to go and talk to. Um, When I was uh, 16, my stepdad took me for a drive in the truck. We lived in the country. This wasn't anything unusual. And I had a horse that was being kept on another farm. And uh, he said, come on, I'll take you to go over to see your horse, which, you know, saying my language. We got in the car, and he began to talk to me about, I know you and your mom are having a hard time, and you can talk to me. Trust me, promise to buy me a car. Uh, I realized that he was drinking, and alcohol was also another forbidden item in our home. This didn't happen. Nobody had any. Drinking was this horrible sin you were going to burn in hell for, and it doesn't happen. Uh, it took me till being in recovery for quite a while, and I don't know, it's probably in my 40s before I connected this dichotomy of there is no alcohol, nobody drinks, we don't have it terrible sin to grandma would bring out the hot toddies when you had a cold and you know sometimes my stepdad occasionally very few times came home drunk went went to the bedroom and fell asleep and I I lived with those simultaneous believing both of those for years Um, anyway I recognized that he was drinking I was afraid he was driving fast we're out in the country and Roads were pretty scary, um, so he offered me some, and so in my mind, it, it, now I see it as a survival technique, but uh, at the time, I, you know, did the best I could, and for years felt ashamed to beat myself up, so I took the alcohol, and I drank. Uh, I was afraid to throw it out the window. I was afraid to pour it out because I felt like that, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. I felt I would be punished, and um My logic was, at the time, the more I drink, the less he drinks. Therefore, the less drunk he'll be, maybe he'll drive better. I mean, that's the best I could come up with. So that's what I did. And I think the blessing of that later was it blunted some of the effects and the memory uh, of this uh, little trip. So we went to... uh, um, this other county, we stopped and he parked the truck and um, said, let's take a walk in the woods. And there was uh, uh, some natural rock formations that people had um, that stored farm equipment or people went to for picnics, whatever. And we had been there before as a family and it, it just really didn't seem that strange to me at the time. So we went down there, and basically he tried to talk me into having sex with him. He was touching me, and he was saying things. Um, And I was just completely revolted and disgusted, and I remember saying, you know, crying and saying, you know, you're my mom's husband, you're my stepdad, this is not okay, and I got the classic, you know, nobody will ever know. 
And I told him I would know and God would know, and that was too much for me. Um, it did not result in intercourse, um, but it was very traumatic. And at the time, I remember crying out to God for help. There was no screaming. There was nobody around. There were no cell phones. Uh, there, there, there was no help other than God. And I, I asked God to help me, and everything just stopped. And then we were walking back to the truck. I mean, it, it just ended that abruptly. And I firmly believe that in some way, somehow, God intervened. And I don't know what that was, but there was nothing else to stop him. So we went on to go and see my horse, and I'm in shock and numb and so forth. Um, <clears throat> we left there. I was very silent. Um, the first person I told was there was a teacher at school that was one of those magnetic type people that students came around, talked to before class in the morning. And I remember he put his hand on my shoulder and apparently I recoiled. And he spoke to me and asked me if I was okay, what had happened and so forth and, and uh, asked me to go to the guidance counselor and, and talk to her, which I did. Her advice was um, to tell my mom before the story came out some other way or my stepdad lied. I went to my mom and I, uh, I told her and she called me a liar. And that was the end of it from that perspective. Um, then I, um, <clears throat> there was a small church just, I don't know, maybe a tenth of a mile, a quarter of a mile down the road. And uh, I was there at a church service one night. It wasn't my church, so to speak, but it was close by. And I'd gone there for Bible school or church service. I don't know. So when I was there, somehow in that service or near the end of the service, I broke down and began crying. And I went uh, in that tradition, it tended to be an invitation at the end of the service. And you could go down for prayer or you know, to identify with the church or whatever decision you needed to make. And I went and I was just sobbing and I began to talk about it. And this is how I recall the events. Basically, I was hushed up, taken aside into another room, told not to talk about this, and I left there. Um, so from those events... <laughs> I pretty much, as a counselor later in my life told me, I pretty much told the world, F you. Um, I was involved with a um, um, boyfriend that I was seeing and sneaking around with, and I hadn't had sex with him yet at that point. I was still a virgin, and uh, I was seeing him. He was black. I lived in a very racially prejudiced area. Um, so I got more deeply involved with him, skipping school with him, um, lying about whatever to to go and, and meet with him, um, telling my mom I would be at advance. There were things like, you know, having some award ceremony or some honored dinner or something for my achievement in school, and I would uh, skip that and go be with him and act out. We had uh, my first giving away my virginity was in the school gym behind the bleachers. So <clears throat> I had no thought of calling law enforcement because my family, my church, and my school had all failed me. No one ever asked me again, followed up, even, are you doing okay? 
So I was really um, depressed, suicidal, going to run away from home. Uh, a parent talked to me. I mean, I had some stuff packed and had some friends who were going to help me. And uh, she said, you'll get your friends in trouble. Don't do this. And, and I didn't. And I put together that if I ran away, I had nowhere to go. I was probably going to wind up in the street using drugs, a prostitute, and dead. So I just, you know, God gave me enough insight to do that. So my solution at the time was I'm going to ride this out, be 18, I'll find my biological father, and I will leave. And I'm going to get out of here and go to college and get an education. Um, I did not speak to my stepdad outside of a couple of fights for for over two years, silence. I mean, at the dinner table, if he said pass the salt, I didn't even blink. And so we all lived in this little uh, craziness, big craziness, really. We lived in this, and so messages were passed from one family member to another if any communication needed to occur, even though we were all in the same house. So I guess you can see that's pretty chaotic. Um, I got to college, um, um, broke up with that boyfriend at the end of high school. It ended. He was becoming violent. I had gotten involved with a married man who was a neighbor who was uh, the Navy recruiter of our community. He had a wife and kids, and so I was having this affair with him, and that was one of the overlapping relationships I referred to. Um, he got me a job, so he's my neighbor. He's an older adult who's married and he's boss. I kind of checked off a lot of boxes there at once. I was involved with him. You know, I was working. He would let me use the car. He bought me things. He took me places. He would take me on, quote, business trips for the day when we went somewhere else and we always stopped at a motel and acted out. Um, I got to college. I was still seeing him. Uh, the weekend I moved into college, my roommate, having been uh, there for a while longer than I took me to a fraternity party and there I met my future ex-husband and so I was really proud of the fact that we did not have sex for a month after we met um, that was just amazing to me we talked on the phone and then walked class and all that kind of stuff and then when we um, had our first date then that we spent the night at uh, his friend's apartment and and um, so I have that overlapping relationship, got caught in that one morning when, when the guy from back home drove there, and it was just sick. And my solution to being confronted by being with this boyfriend, cheating on him, is then I went to a motel and acted out with him. And immediately, I remember, because this is in our questions, I remember immediately after we had sex, I got up. And immediately and uh, went to the bathroom and got dressed. And I remember him saying, that tells me everything I needed to know. Um, I ended up getting married, and I was 20 years old. My, uh, my ex was in the military, and he was an officer, and so I'm very grateful that I have two children as a result of that relationship and also got to travel and learn a lot about the world and see things and there were there were many good things but it turned out that he developed a, a gambling addiction and um, I was Vietnam and it was crazy and sick and, and he was very mentally abusive and 
and emotionally abusive and eventually had developed into physical abuse. And so we had a marriage of domestic violence. And so all this, I'm going to build this wonderful life with this white picket fence and live happily ever after was not happening. And again, I was depressed, suicidal at times, um, didn't have affairs on him, but I acted out with myself a lot and also had emotional affairs. Um, I found a counselor in my late 20s when I was suicidal, and um, he saved my life, and I began a journey from there of engaging um, counseling at various points in my life. Um, I have not excelled in my career a lot because of uh, my character defects, brokenness, and the lust addiction, but it has also treated me very well, and I'm very grateful. So we come to the end of that marriage was 19 years, got a divorce. There was all this court stuff and, you know, restraining orders and all that. My kids are starting to act out, and it was a very traumatic time. So I go to church and rededicate myself to my faith, and uh, I thought, boy, this is all going to be great, and once again, I'm going to start over, and we're going to live happily ever after. Um, I moved into a 900-square-foot apartment. It felt like a palace to me after getting out of the domestic violence. I had uh, a preteen and a teenager, and uh, we lived in this two-bedroom apartment, <clears throat> and I slept on a fold-out couch in the, in the, uh, in the living room and, and was just, like, hopeful, and this is going to be my new life, and we're going to move on from here and repair everything. It's going to be okay. So that Christmas, I decided to buy a computer for a little family and to be a responsible parent. You know, I put it in the living room in a public place where they can see the screen. And then I started, uh, you know, looking at it. And I'd heard a lot of things about the Internet and things. And so, again, my curiosity and I needed to do research. I needed to see what I was protecting my kids from. Um, unfortunately, I'm the one who got caught in the net, if you'll pardon the pun. I started out on a Christian website um, in a chat room talking to people. Then there would be some kind of flirtatious talk, some innuendo. That began to escalate. Um, I got a phone number of somebody on there, so we were talking to each other on the phone as well as communicating on the computer. So then I start looking at other sites, very proud of the fact I've never paid for porn. I've never paid for pornographic sites. I looked at a lot of stuff, and there's a, there was plenty out there. And um, <clears throat> I began, I remember, I am not a tech person at all. But in my disease, I was able to get motivated, and I was able to go buy a scanner from my computer, install it, and uh, so I could send pictures. I got a microphone so that, you know, it wasn't enough to just text, and frankly, I'm uh, not too coordinated, so like trying to type and act out at the same time was just a little too much, and so I thought, you know, I'll get a uh, a headset and have a microphone so I can talk to people and hear their voice, and that was escalating. Somewhere along the line, I discovered a magazine that had a phone sex line that was free to women. So I began to call that, and at first I was embarrassed and tentative and awkward, and uh, that didn't last very long, and then it escalated more and more. So I talked to more and more people. It became 
very exhilarating and intoxicating and how could I attract certain people on this line and just pride. And this, then it turned into hours and hours and hours of acting out. I was neglecting my health. I was having physical pain as a result of my acting out. Um, I lied to myself was this was not real sex. I wasn't hurting anybody. Um, you know, there was a lot of conflict. I knew better than all that and at the same time. And, and sometimes I was listening to and discussing topics and acting out to them that were absolutely disgusting, even frightening. And I'm sure that I spoke to more than one criminal person who was doing more than acting out, uh, risking myself and family. That became not enough. It just was progressing and escalating very fast. I exchanged numbers with guys. We were calling each other. I was letting my kids go anywhere, do whatever they want, grateful when they went to their dad for visitation. I was at work. Didn't have not acted out at work yet, but I, my mind was just gone, and I was not present, and I'm doing things that could really harm people by not being attentive. Um, <clears throat> and I was so chronically tardy um, because I would act out all night. I'd say, okay, i got to get off the, uh, hold on, i got to, all right, somebody was trying to call my phone. So I was, um, <clears throat> I'll get off the phone and go to bed at 11. Well, it'd be 1 o'clock. Well, I'll stop in the next call. And this would go on till 6 o'clock in the morning. I didn't sleep. Then I would force myself off there, jump in the shower, race to work, trying to play beat the clock. I was tardy enough. They enabled me long enough. Um, So one month I got an award in my department, and the next month I'm sitting in HR, and the lady and I are crying together because they had to fire me, and they didn't want to. And I certainly didn't want to be fired. So... um, That was really demoralizing and obvious evidence that I had a serious problem. I knew enough from being with my ex and being in counseling and by my education, the signs and symptoms of being an addict, and I couldn't stop. It was terrifying. I likened it in meetings to being on a train, and I thought I was not only the conductor and engineer, but I owned the train and the track and the railroad company. Um, Then when I find myself going down the mountain, I find out I'm welded shut alone inside this train, and it's going to crash. There's no way out. And um, I was on the phone line one night. I talked to a guy, thank God for him, in Western Canada. He was in relapse from his program. He was also a mental health worker. Um, He shared with me that I was very sick and that I needed help, and he gave me a phone number to call um, for... um, another fellowship and his fellowship to deal with recovery. And that began my recovery journey for this. I went to the other group. Um, I was um, desperate to find it. They 12-step people in. You had to make contact, meet someone, get approved to come to the meeting and so forth. It seemed like it took forever. I don't know if it was weeks or what. Um, So I went straight from acting out, um, flirting with someone at the traffic light and going to a Friday noon meeting and I walked in and there were like 12 men there and I I had to avert my eyes and look at the table and the floor but I was so desperate for help and I was too convinced that I was going to die 
that I didn't care about that. I liken that to being on the Titanic. The ship's going down. I'm jumping in the lifeboat. You better move over. I'm coming in, and I don't even care if you want me there. And that that really began my journey. And um, so I was in that fellowship for a year and a half. I was having great fellowship. We'd go out on Friday night to eat, and I was talking to people, and it was a fellowship where you set your own bottom line and various things. So I stopped a lot of behaviors except the masturbation. And uh, I had come to a place I was praying. I had a sponsor. I was doing what they asked me to do. I was going to meetings, reading, um, all that. But I felt like I had hit a plateau and I wasn't growing and I didn't understand it. And I was new to recovery and really didn't know that much about it as far as applying it to myself. And and um, I prayed. And so I met someone who introduced me to essay which better fits into my, yes, am I running out of time? Yeah, I'm sorry, we're we're about 10 minutes till the end of the meeting. I'm sorry to interrupt, but maybe if you want to come back and finish the story um, on another Monday, that would be awesome. I would love to do that, and I will just end it by saying thank you all so much for listening. I'm sorry I didn't get to the rest. I do have a sponsor. I am working the steps. I attend conventions and meetings and sponsor people. And I'm I'm married now to someone who's also in program. And uh, now today I would conclude with saying I have character defects, I have problems, now I have hope and I have a solution. Thank you for listening. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.